Good afternoon and welcome to this gathering of Covenant Hope Church. It is a joy to see so many new faces and old faces here today. My name is Mark Donald and I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders of the church. When I've been preaching, I've been leading us through a series in 1 John. So if you will, turn to the second chapter of 1 John. It's towards the end of your Bible. And you'll be helped to read along with me. You know, uh, when I was in school and then when I was in university and when I was studying uh, in seminary as well, tests always terrified me. I think that's pretty common for most people that tests and exams cause us fear often. We can feel dread about them. We can try to run from tests. They can cause us to panic. But tests are actually helpful for us. Tests help us by teaching us something about ourselves. We learn about what we know. We learn about what we don't know sometimes. But that's important because oftentimes these tests are given to us for our safety. They're for our security, right? So if you go to a doctor you want to know that that doctor has passed his anatomy exams. He knows the difference between a brain and a heart, or whatever part of the body that he's doing surgery on. Maybe more common to many of us, we, we, uh, we want to know that when we get on the road, that the people that are on the road have passed their driving test. That makes us feel secure. Maybe not all the time in Dubai, but... Passing a driving test means that you know how to drive, and it's for our good that we have these kinds of tests. But also, tests can help us to grow in confidence, confidence and assurance that we know something, that we do know how to drive, after all. John has a test for us in the passage that we're going to be looking at today. The Apostle John was an old man when he wrote this letter. He was one of the last surviving apostles, one of the last disciples of the original 12 that had been with Jesus through his earthly ministry. And in the opening verses of this letter, he emphasized the historical reality of the good news. The good news that Jesus, God's Son, became a man. He became a man to bring eternal life to those who were dead in their sins. And John stressed the reliability of his message by saying that he had seen Jesus with his own eyes. He had touched the risen Jesus, raised from the dead, with his own hands. He had experienced Jesus firsthand. And John went on to explain in the passage that we looked at last time about the message that Jesus proclaimed. A message that God is light, that He's holy, that He's true, but all of us are not holy. All of us are not true. We have sinned against this holy God, but John comforts us with this awesome promise. He says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the passage that we're going to look at today, we'll be looking at the first 
six verses of chapter 2. So if you would, if you're not already there, please turn to 1 John chapter 2, and I'm going to read these verses out loud. John says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Before we dive in, let's take another moment and pray and ask God for His help. Heavenly Father, we praise You for providing us with a Savior in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank You that You have not only saved us from the consequences of our sins, Your holy wrath, but also from the slavery of sin, so that we can walk in newness of life. Help us to walk in the way that Jesus did. In His name we pray. Amen. As I studied this passage and sought to come up with a summary for this, this section in one sentence, I came up with one very simple sentence to summarize this passage. Jesus saves us from sin. Simple, right? Jesus saves us from sin. I'm going to unpack this idea in two points. Firstly, Jesus saves us from God's wrath against sin in verses 1 and 2, and then Jesus saves us from sin's rule in verses 3 through 6. So, the first point, Jesus saves us from God's wrath against sin. John opens this new section of the letter by addressing his readers again. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's easy to just rush over those first three words, but it's important for us to note that John cares deeply for the people that he's writing to. He has affections, the same kind of affections that a loving father or mother has for their children. And like a loving parent, John cares deeply about their well-being. And like little children, he knows that they can sometimes wander off and put themselves into danger. You know, when I was a little boy, I had a lot of energy. My parents had a very hard time of keeping me close to them and keeping me out of trouble. So much so that they actually bought me a child safety harness, which is essentially a dog leash for kids. <laughs> and they attached this thing to me so that I wouldn't wander off, that I wouldn't run away or get myself into trouble. John says that he's writing this letter in some ways like a, like a safety harness, so that they wouldn't wander like little children into the great danger of sin. 
one of John's purposes for writing to them is simply to keep them from sinning. Like a loving parent, John warns them away from the thing which will harm them the most, sin against God. Sin is rebellion. It's rejecting God, and it is disobeying our Heavenly Father. And like a child that's drawn towards an electricity socket and wants to stick their finger in it, we are often tempted to go and stick our fingers in sin and get ourselves involved in sin in all kinds of ways, in different areas of our lives. And the problem is that sin is far worse for us than the shock that you would get from an electricity socket. The consequences of sin are much greater than that. But reading this first line raises the question in our minds, is it actually possible not to sin? Didn't John say in chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us? Now, John knows that we'll all sin, even as Christians, but he also knows that a Christian's relationship to sin has fundamentally changed. Before we come to know Christ, we are enslaved in sin. We can't help but sin. We continue to do it willingly, voluntarily, but we can't do anything else. But a Christian is no longer a slave to sin. A Christian doesn't have to sin. They are able not to sin. John doesn't want them to think that just because they can be forgiven of their sins by confessing them to God and trusting in Jesus, that they don't need to worry about fighting sin anymore. No, he wants them to know sin is a very serious thing. He wants them to avoid it at all costs. So I want to encourage you that are here today. Take time today or this coming week and ask yourselves, what's your posture towards your sin? How does your sin affect you? Does it bother you when you sin against God? Or do you not really care? Are you taking noticeable steps in your life to avoid sin? Or are you making a habit of sin? John here tells us that he's written this letter about God and His grace and forgiveness, not so that we would take sin less seriously, but so that we may not sin. This is one of the great objectives of all of Scripture to encourage us to avoid sin, and it warns us of the dangers of sin. We should avoid sin like we would avoid drinking bottles of poison, or that we would avoid playing with a venomous serpent. Oh, sin is far more dangerous than those things. But sometimes, by stressing God's gracious provision for sinners to be forgiven, we've deceived ourselves into thinking that sin isn't just, it's just not such a big deal. We're almost encouraged to sin. Some people in John's churches and some even in other parts of the Bible would say, oh, sin's not so bad, we can keep sinning so that God's grace will abound more and more. John doesn't want us to think that way at all. God's Word tells us to avoid sin at all costs. 
Are you tempted to think that way about sin? To imagine that your sin isn't so bad because God will just forgive you. That's his role. That's his job. Well, the cure for sin shows us how serious the disease of sin really is. And that's where John takes us next. What do we do with the sin that's still present in our lives? What do we do when we sin? John says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. While John desires that they wouldn't sin, John recognizes that his readers will sin. John knows that the life of a Christian will be characterized less and less by sin, but that sin will still be present in our lives. What is the cure for this sin that's in our lives? John tells us that it's Jesus. Jesus is the cure. Jesus is the solution for sin. And Jesus is the solution for sin because of three things that John mentions. He gives us three reasons in verses 1 and 2 for why Jesus is a suitable Savior from sin. First, he says that Jesus is our advocate with God the Father. Now, advocate is not a word that we use very often, but it refers to someone who comes alongside us, someone who comes alongside and offers us help, who publicly supports us and speaks on our behalf. It has the idea of a mediator or a go-between, someone who stands in the gap between two parties. And in this context, we see that Jesus acts that way for Christians in their relationship towards God the Father. God's Son represents all of God's people before God the Father. So imagine for a moment your, one of your favorite TV shows or courtroom dramas, movie or show where a lawyer stands up in court and he speaks on behalf of a defendant. He argues their case. Jesus is like that. He's like the lawyer who pleads the case. And in this scenario, we're the defendant. We're the accused one. Our sin makes us guilty and our sin is first and foremost against God, which is why we need an advocate with the Father. If we stand before God alone, we will have no excuse to make. We will have no case to plead. No defense. We'll have nothing to say to excuse or deny our sin. God will know it all in full. We'll stand accused, condemned, and guilty before God. We've all rejected God's right to rule in our lives. Even after coming to a knowledge of the truth, Christians still sin and break God's laws. But Jesus speaks on our behalf. He speaks in our defense before God the Father, and He doesn't say they didn't mean it. They're not that bad. It wasn't them. It wasn't their fault. They're, not, they're, they're innocent. No, Jesus defends the guilty and the condemned. Jesus is an advocate for sinners who are guilty. Jesus represents those who deserve the verdict guilty and deserve far worse than life in prison. They deserve eternity in hell. So how can Jesus be a helpful advocate for guilty sinners like us? 
Well, John gives us the second reason that Jesus is a suitable Savior from sin, because Jesus is righteous. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is able to stand as our representative before God the Father on our behalf because He's perfect in every way. In His life on earth, Jesus never once sinned. Jesus always obeyed His Father's will. Jesus never uttered an unkind word. Jesus never told a little white lie. Jesus never took something that didn't belong to Him. He never took a second glance, lustful glance at a woman. He never sinned in His anger. Jesus is righteous. Jesus can stand in our place as our representative because He's righteous. Jesus is a suitable Savior for sinners because Jesus is a sinless substitute. Unlike our father Adam, whose sin led to condemnation for all mankind, Jesus, who stands in our place and acts as our representative, never sinned. He lived a life free from sin. He lived the life that every man and woman should have lived, but hasn't. God's Son became a man to live a sinless life in our place as our representative. He experienced a fully human life. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus was not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but He was one who was in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet He never gave in to temptation. He is without sin. The fact that Jesus is righteous is crucial to His work of saving us from our sin. Because His righteousness can become our righteousness through faith. But even that, even His advocacy, even His righteousness would not be enough for Jesus to secure forgiveness from God for us. Jesus came to do more than live a perfect life in the place of sinners. He came to die for them. That's the third reason that John gives us for why Jesus is a suitable Savior from sin. Because Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Here, John gets to the very heart of the good news. If we, if we don't understand this, then we don't understand the gospel as we should. Jesus is a suitable Savior because He's a propitiation for our sins. He's the propitiation for our sins. Other translations say that He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and that word propitiation in its simplest of terms means that Jesus took what we deserve for our sins. Jesus took what we deserve for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, His suffering was far more than merely physical. Jesus was enduring God's wrath against our sin. Our sin is against a holy God, one who is in every way perfect and demands perfect justice. Were we to receive what we deserve, we would bear righteous judgment from this infinitely holy God for all of eternity long. That's why it isn't enough for Jesus to be our advocate, even a completely righteous one. No, we need Jesus as our propitiation. We need Jesus to satisfy God's righteous wrath against our sins. Jesus didn't only live to save His people, He also died to save them. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the most glorious and yet terrifying reality of the gospel. The price that God demands in His holiness, He provided in His love. God's wrath against sin is terrible, and it hangs over all of us. And yet for the Christian, it has been satisfied in Christ who gave Himself up for us willingly. Do you see how the gospel brings comfort to us when we've sinned? John is applying it here and saying, if you've sinned, be trusting in this. Put your hope in this. Stand on this. But do you also see how the gospel warns us and reminds us of how terrible sin is? That's why John encourages them not to sin. Because the cure for sin required the death of the righteous Son of God. Sin is no light thing. Friends, we must run from sin. We must avoid at all costs. The proof that Jesus' propitiation was successful, was accepted, is that He rose from the dead. He didn't remain hanging on the cross under God's wrath. He didn't remain dead in the grave, buried. No, He rose from the dead, having paid for sin in full, and now He sits at God's right hand. He sits at God's right hand and He advocates for us. He prays for us. He intercedes for us. This is glorious news. This is great news for sinners like us. John goes on and tells us that Jesus is not only the propitiation for His sins and the sins of His original readers, but He also says that He's the the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. What does that mean? Well, we can be certain of one thing. John isn't teaching here universalism. John is not teaching the belief that there will be no hell, that there is no judgment, and that all will be saved. John makes it very clear in this letter and The other authors of the New Testament make it very clear that not everyone will be saved. Not everyone will end up in heaven. So what does John mean? Could John mean that Jesus' saving work is offered to all without exception and all are called to accept it, to repent and believe? That's certainly true. The author of the gospel is made available to all. But I think that John's point here is that Jesus is the one and only Savior of all mankind. He's not just the Savior of God's Old Old Testament people, Israel. There are not different routes to reconciliation with God outside of Jesus Christ. No, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to God the Father apart from Him. He's the way, the truth, and the life for all the peoples of the world, for all nations. John, who also wrote Revelation, he saw a great vision of heaven. Listen to how he describes what he saw. I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
the Lamb who was slain in the place of sinners. Do you see this glorious vision of people from all parts of the world being saved through this work that Christ did? Friends, if you are here and you are not a Christian, have you considered what you would say, what you will do when you are called to give an account before God? What will be your defense for the sins that you've committed and the way that you have lived? We all fail, even in keeping our own standards, let alone a perfect, holy, righteous God. That day is coming when you will give an account, and you must be ready, and you can be. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. You can't appease God. You can't satisfy His wrath on your own. And you don't have to. Nothing that you could offer to Him, no gift, no amount of good works or good intentions could satisfy and remove the guilt and judgment of your sins. We Christians don't believe that we're better than anyone else. No, we know we're sinners just like everybody else. But we know Jesus And we believe in His promises that all who come to Him, all who put their faith and trust in Him, all who repent and turn from their sins, they'll have an advocate with the Father. They'll have their sins, wrath against their sins, satisfied in full. The payment has been made. There's no more to be made. And He calls you to turn from your sins and to trust in His work even today as the perfect satisfying sacrifice for God's wrath. You can do that even now, even today. In these first two verses, John exhorts his readers not to sin. Sin is serious, and as we've seen, it is costly. But he comforts his readers by reminding them that as serious as sin is, God's grace and love are greater. In love, God sent His Son to save His people from their sins and from His wrath against their sin. He satisfied the debt that His holiness demanded. But this raises a question, how can I know if Jesus is my advocate? How can I be confident that my sin has been dealt with? How can I be certain that I really know Jesus? And that takes us to our second point. Jesus saves us from sin's reign. Jesus saves us from sin's reign. In verses 3 through 6, John gives us one of a series of tests that are repeated throughout this letter so that Christians can be confident that they are walking in the light, that they really do have fellowship with God, and that they have Jesus as their Savior. John says in verses 3 and 5 that by taking this test, we can know that we have come to know Jesus. We can know that we are in Christ. We might call this the obedience test. The evidence of knowing Jesus, of having a relationship with Jesus, of being a Christian, is obeying Christ. Because Jesus' saving work doesn't just save us from God's wrath against our sin, but it also saves us from sin's reign or rule in our lives. 
Jesus sets sinners free from the slavery that they have to sin so that they can walk in obedience to God. And God promised this. He promised them a new heart. He promises us a new heart in order that we may obey and keep His commandments. As John has already said in this letter, one is not just a Christian because they claim to be. Just calling yourself a Christian doesn't actually necessarily make you one. Look with me at verse 4. John says, whoever says, I know him. That's another way of saying, I'm a Christian. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. John is saying that a person's words must be tested by his works. That a person's walk must match their talk. Just like any other test, this one tells us something about ourselves. Passing a maths test doesn't cause you to know maths. It reveals whether you knew maths before or not. It, it, it will reveal if you understand how to add and subtract or divide or multiply. As you can probably tell, I, I didn't get very far in maths. <laughs> but it, it reveals to you if you know these things. And in the same way, working hard to keep God's commands doesn't make you a Christian. But obedience to Christ is the evidence that you have come to know Him, that you've become a Christian. And this is so crucial. It's so important to understand this. It's the difference between life and death, heaven and hell, the true gospel and a false gospel. God doesn't require us to pass a test in order to get into heaven. Jesus provides all that we need to get into heaven. He passed by His perfect righteousness. Passing this test confirms that we know Him, that we know truly have faith and trust in Him as our Savior. Jesus uses the example of a tree to illustrate this, a tree that bears fruits, so an orange tree doesn't become an orange tree by producing oranges, but it produces oranges because of the kind of tree that it is. And in the same way, Christians don't become Christians by walking in obedience to God, but genuine faith in Jesus always results in obedience, always results in the fruit of obedience. And the world knows this. The world knows something about this, because the world looks around at all the people who call themselves Christians, and it says, you know what? They're a bunch of hypocrites. They're just like everybody else. They sin, and they do all kinds of wicked things. But as we see here, the Bible addresses this very thing. It tells us that there will be some who call themselves Christians that say they know Jesus, but they don't keep His commandments. And what does John tell us about them? He says that they are liars, and the truth is not in them. Jesus taught, and John teaches here, that it's not enough to say even sincerely that you know Jesus. It doesn't make it so. So if you want to know, if you really want to know whether you know Jesus, take John's test by asking yourself the following questions. 
Do you obey God's word? Are you walking in the way Jesus walked? Remember, John doesn't give us this test to cause Christians to doubt their salvation. He doesn't want us to live in perpetual fear that we're not really saved. No, he writes this actually to comfort and assure Christians because genuine Christians walk in obedience to God. Not perfectly, but noticeably. Christians should look like Christ. There should be evidence in our lives that we are seeking to walk in obedience to God more and more and more, just like Jesus did perfectly. Charles Spurgeon said about this passage, holiness of life is the best proof that we know God. It matters not how readily we speak about God, nor how much we suppose that we love Him. No, the great test is this, do we keep His commandments? What a heart-searching test this is, how it should humble us before God's mercy seat. When we try to be in every way what God's Word tells us that we should be, then we can know that we are in God. But if we walk carelessly, if we take no account of our actions, if we just do after a random fashion whatever comes into our foolish hearts, then we have no evidence at all that we are in God. Here are three ways that we can apply this passage to our lives as Christians, as those who do know Jesus, but desire to grow in being sure and certain of it, to grow in our confidence. First of all, study and pray through God's Word. In order to keep God's commands, which John says here, in order to keep His Word, we need to know it. We need to know it, and we need God's help. Brothers and sisters, God's Word is a precious gift to us. Are you neglecting this gift? God intends for the Word of God to be the means by which we grow in knowing Jesus more and more as our Savior and growing more and more like Him, more and more holy. As we read earlier, King David in Psalm 19, reflecting on the gift of God's Word, he says how, how it re revives our souls. It, it makes us wise. This is a wonderful model for us. And Jesus modeled this very same thing, a commitment to God's Word. Jesus regularly went away to desolate places to pray, and He had God's Word stored up in His heart and in His mind. The Son of God, even, took time to memorize God's Word. It's what He used to defend Himself against Satan's temptations in the wilderness. He defended Himself with the sword of the Spirit, God's Word, by quoting it back to Satan himself. And as Jesus hung dying on the cross, Scripture was running through His mind, and He was praying it to the Father. Are you studying and praying through God's Word? Because studying the Scriptures will keep you from sin, just like John said. Or sin will keep you from studying God's Word. 
Jesus prayed to His Father for His followers that God would sanctify them, that He would make them more holy in the truth of God's Word. Believers will be known by keeping God's Word, and we keep God's Word by knowing it. So are you studying God's Word prayerfully? Are you studying it daily and diligently? Is it a priority in your life? Are you reading it in an effort to walk more and more faithfully, not to just know more stuff, not to just be a hearer of the Word or a reader, but to be a doer? The second application is that the church is the school where Christians take this test. The church is the school where Christians take this test, and it's not cheating to work together on this test. John is writing to churches, and he here uses the plural. He says, by this we know that we have come to know Him, and by this we know that we are in Him. Christians, we are helped when we do this kind of self-examination with the help of others. God has designed the church as His representative to help us to evaluate our lives. That's why we have a membership class and membership process where we take time to listen to the accounts of if someone, how they know God and when they came to know God. Jesus has given us one another to assist one another in keeping God's commands. We warn one another of sin, and we spur one another on to faith and good works. There are times in our lives as Christians when our view becomes foggy, and all we can see is the sin in our lives, and we need others around us. We need brothers and sisters to encourage us, not flatter us, but to point out evidence of God's grace in our lives ways that we are taking steps of obedience, ways that we are keeping His commands. Brothers and sisters, when you meet with other Christians throughout the week, take the opportunity to encourage them, to point out to them, not to flatter them, but to cheer them on in some way that you see them walking in obedience to God's Word. But there are also times when we need one another to see clearly when we don't see the sin in our lives, to help us to see the ways that we're falling short or failing to keep God's Word, and to keep us from pursuing sin in our lives. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly of all, we must recognize that it is love for God that motivates obedience to God. Look at verse 5. It helps us to see that love is what ultimately motivates us to keep God's Word. He says, whoever keeps His Word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. That sentence sounds a little clunky, a little confusing. What John is saying is, to love God with sincerity of heart is to keep His commandments. And and John got this idea from Jesus Himself. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So this test, this obedience test, it doesn't only reveal if we truly know and abide in Jesus, but if we truly love him. The greatest motivator for obedience to Jesus is to love Jesus more. 
If you know Him, you'll love Him. And if you love Him, you'll obey Him. It's that simple. Obedience flows from love for God. We keep His Word and we walk more and more like Jesus when we're cultivating love for God in our hearts. So in your fight for faithful obedience, strive to cultivate love in your heart for God. Obedience to God, it flows from love for God. John tells his readers later in this letter that we love because God loved us first. He came, His love came to us, so then our love goes to Him. Our love grows when we reflect on how God has loved us and how He's shown that love for us in Christ. When we go back and reflect on what we just heard from verses 1 and 2 about how Jesus came as our advocate, as He came to save us from God's wrath against our sin, to set us free from slavery to sin. We find ourselves loving God more and more the more we dwell on this good news. And when we love God, we'll gladly keep His commandments. We trust that His ways are best. And they aren't a burden to us. They're a joyful duty. Do you know this Savior? Are you walking in His ways? If not, you can know Him today. You can trust Him. Jesus saves us from God's wrath against our sin. He stands before God's throne as our righteous advocate. He satisfied God's justice by bearing our sin, by dying on the cross. And Jesus saves us from sin's reign in our lives so that we will walk in the way that He walked in joyful obedience to God's will. Those of us who know Him, we long for the day when we will see Him. And when we see Him face to face, we will be made perfectly righteous, just like He is. Oh, how we long for that day. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You for this glorious news, that though we are sinful, though we have rebelled against You, though we deserve Your righteous judgment, You sent Your Son in love, and Your Son came willingly and gave up His life, a perfect, spotless Lamb, and died in the place of sinners. He bore the wrath that we deserve, and He rose from the dead so that we could walk in newness of life, and that we can look forward to eternity with You. Lord, I pray for our congregation, those that are here today. Lord, I pray for those that are believers, that they would be confident, that they would know that they know Christ. And for those that don't know Him, I pray that they would put their faith and trust in Him, that they would turn from sin and look to Christ, our great advocate, the righteous one who gave His life for us. We pray for His glory and in His name. Amen. Our last song is on page 14 of the bulletin, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's stand.